Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic body-based practices with so many real life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to barrytesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir. Welcome everyone to a brand new Art of Money interview. Today, I have the honor of and delight of interviewing Kimberly Ann Johnson. And I am gonna read a little tiny bit of her bio and then officially open it up and welcome her. So Kimberly is a somatic experiencing practitioner, educator, and author. She helps women heal trauma, awaken their power, and feel at home in their bodies to start living life on their own terms. She's always had a deep knowing that she was in the world to change things for the better. All of that came into sharp focus when she became a mother. Her whole life changed completely in that moment and she had to learn a new way of being in the world. That gave her the what, learning the somatic experiencing tools and having her world rearranged all over again in that experience gave her the how. Now she uses her training, education, experience and advocacy to help women get closer to their blueprints, unpack all those layers of habits and conditioning so they can hear what their body's telling them and know who they really are. She is the author of the fourth trimester book and journal and the brand new book, The Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power and Use It for Good. Welcome, Kimberly. Thanks, Barry. I'm so excited to be here. I've, of course, been doing a lot of interviews, but I feel deep relief hearing your voice and talking to someone else who is somatically oriented. And I know we share so many trainings also coming to the world from the lens of dancing and the body. So I'm excited to talk today. Thank you. Me too. I've been actually nervous and excited, even though I knew that we would both like do a check-in and before and yeah, and, and I've just been really excited to talk with you. So um, I, I would like you to please share with us a little snapshot of life, family, and work right now as a beginning. Mm. Yeah, so we're recording this at the end of April, 2021. 
And like a lot of people, I was displaced or just chose to displace myself during the pandemic. So I had chosen to move to New York with my daughter. She's going to start seventh grade there. And we were making a big move from San Diego, California, packed up a big old 22 foot U-Haul, drove across the country. You know, we were like all in, we were all in for like the rest of high school. And then uh, we were there about six months when the shelter in place orders started. I had a book deadline for Call of the Wild. My au pair who had lived with us for two years, who is Brazilian and my daughter's also Brazilian. She was kind of like my au pair as well. Um, just an incredible person and support for our family. She went home to Brazil. And so I just realized I needed more support than I had there. A lot of my friends who I had moved to be around left the city. So I came back here to San Diego, which is where I'm from. And so right now I'm, um, my daughter's 13 and a half. We just finished looking at high schools. Um, you know, this book, Call of the Wild, is my second book. My first book has a deck of cards and a journal that go with it. And I'm in kind of a zoom out moment where I just, just two weeks ago, the book came out. We had a big party. Um, it was kind of like a wedding. I've never had a wedding, but it seemed like that's what it was like. And I'm just in that sort of refractory period where the tsunami rolls back out to see, kind of looking at all of the pieces. And one of my close friends, Ash Robinson, who's a CEO and um, has helped me with business along the years, she always tells me, you have, to, you have to ask yourself, how are you doing? And then how are you doing as the leader of your business? Because for me, those two things have kind of gotten glued together sometimes. And I'd say as a leader in my business, I'm feeling pretty challenged right now. I have more people working for me than ever. I have more expenses than ever. And as you could imagine, I think that's how most people feel after a wedding or after a big event. It's just or having a child that requires a lot of resources. And I'm just sort of asking myself the big questions of what do I want to build? I have four more years with my daughter at home. Um, how do I want that time to be? How do I want to spend my time? So those, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Wonderful. Thank you. I love the larger view and all the different pieces. And thank you for sharing all of that. And we're certainly going to dive into your somatic work and this new book, which I started listening to this week. And I'll share more about that. But I I am excited to ask you some questions about your relationship to mom, to money, because, you know, and at the art of money, we do highlight money memoirs, which is strengths, challenges around money, um, triumphants, the good stuff, the hard stuff. So before we get into your book, if you would please share a bit of your own money story strengths, challenges, obstacles you've had to overcome, and what you're continuing to work with right now? And I know that's an enormous question, so go wherever you want to. My main money story was just, um, I grew up in San Diego, and until I was 10, I'm the oldest child of three, we lived in a neighborhood. So we lived in like a regular middle-class tract home, suburban type situation. I could walk down the street to play tennis against the garage door with my friends, ride my bike around. And then when I was 10, my parents 
went, got very upwardly mobile and we moved to a very wealthy area of town where we lived really far from everyone. Uh, and I didn't have friends that I could just ride their bike to their house. I started school there and I had a really hard time in school there. In fact, I only stayed for a half a year and my parents moved me to another school. And I just was looking around at the adults and everyone was driving like really fancy cars. And I just felt like no one was really happy. And that was just a feeling I had like, okay, everyone here has everything you're supposed to want, but no one's really happy. And so somehow I made a, I made a pact with myself that I'm just going to be happy no matter what. And it's not going to matter what I have. And that kind of turned into, um, and I was really fortunate in terms of like my parents paid for my whole college education. I had a credit card at school that my dad gave me. I was really responsible. So he, he was just basically like be responsible with it. Um, when I would say I want to work because I think I felt kind of nervous about not really understanding how money worked very well. He would just say, no, I want you to concentrate on studying. I did have a babysitting job every Saturday night in my entire college time, which is kind of unusual, I think, for a college student. Um, I love kids, and I always did, and I just felt like, okay, it's like something I could rely on, so I've always been a big saver, uh, but then it just kind of segued into um, an interest in nonprofits, an interest in, you know, all anything that was going to be service-oriented, and I can talk about that in with respect to the nervous system later, uh, but then I became a yoga practitioner and that kind of segued into my, you know, this idea of like, you're, you're kind of better if you don't have a lot. And I think every religion sort of has its own version of that. Like, you know, the beware of the rich and um, you know, and so I, I tied up moral value and like, well, I'm good because I don't have a lot. And I got some of the worst financial advice of my life in yoga studios where People would say, you know, just have a Lakshmi purse and then whatever you make put in there and then it'll just be there when you need it. And that kind of thing that just sort of played into my magical thinking and not having to really understand what it, what it meant. I was afraid of it to the point where when I graduated from college and I moved to New York City and I was dancing, I got a job waiting tables. I was making pretty good money at the time. And I sort of knew like I should save some of this. And then I asked my uncle and he was like, no, you should just buy like speakers and equipment. Like that's what you do at this phase of your life. So I was really kind of trying to figure it out, but I didn't really know where to look. And as I've come into better relationship with money, which really was, as you mentioned at the beginning, the turning point was for me was motherhood. Like, okay, all these things that I was avoiding kind of playing the game, all of a sudden I didn't feel comfortable gambling with my daughter, like health insurance. I felt fine and probably still would feel fine without health insurance, but I felt like I can't play that game with my daughter. Um, and then just starting to realize that there was an underlying fear and dependency built in where, um, you know, oh, my dad would come to my rescuer. Most of the time I had what I needed, but if it came to someone inviting me to their wedding, I wouldn't go and I wouldn't necessarily admit to myself it was because I couldn't afford it but really that was the underlying reason was like I don't actually have the money to buy a nice gift or the kind of shame that came with that so I had to really in the last 10 years especially 
confront these ideas about, you know, I was really afraid that if I got money, I was going to become an asshole. Like, I'm just going to, like, it sounds ridiculous to say out loud, but it's like, I was afraid I was suddenly going to not care about the same things. I was going to become selfish. I was going to hoard. Um, and to my great relief, that's not true. Um, now I have more money and I still do the same things. And my, I, one of the most loving things my dad's done for me recently is that he helped me with over, over Christmas this year, I, I was at a bottleneck with a new website, new branding, still working on book revisions. I have another book project and a sounds true project in the works. And so my dad was just kind of like, let me handle your end of the year stuff for you. And like, I'll help you with taxes type of thing. So he was helping me with a budget, which I'd never really used before. And it turns out that it's really interesting that I am an incredible estimator. Like my estimation of what I had and what actually came out was within a thousand dollars of each other, even with like my business brought in 690,000 last year. So even with that, I was still in my head within a small margin, but you know, preferring to keep myself in a bit of confusion or like vagueness and not just confront the number about it. But my dad built in in my budget $500 a month of just money to give away that's unaccounted for. Because at first he was like, well, you should give to a 501c3 or you should do this or you should do that. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not what I do in actuality. Like in actuality, I like to just be able to give people money and not have to like ask them for something back for it. And that's completely different than how my Libra, baby boomer, extremely principled five dad deals with money. But he loves me enough to like know who I am and build that into how he understands how I work with money. Mm. So much there. I mean, I, I share so much with you about, you know, I, I wasn't on a spiritual path, but as a therapist who was training in Europa, you know, with Buddhist practitioners all around, you know, I was given all the same messages, you know, wanting money, talking about money, striving for money is bad, right? Is not right. spiritual and all of that and had to work through all of that. Um, I also just want to honor, I love this relationship with our, with your father. Um, you know, that could be rife with challenges and strings attached and maybe it was, you know, for many years. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's more to all of that, but it sounds like you're finding a way with each other and he's seeing you, um, and you're being supported around a budget. And I'm not surprised that while you were doing magical bookkeeping in your head, you still had the capacity to, um, be tracking all of those numbers pretty close, like really closely. So you were still doing some level of bookkeeping tracking in your head, you know? Yeah. And I should say, I mean, I, I work with bench accounting. Like mm -hmm. it's not that I didn't, like I have accounting, but still, um, I think it even surprised my dad because I think because he's used to doing business a certain way. I mean, he's kind of surprised. My parents are both entrepreneurs. So, um, you know, my parents are used to having income that goes up and down and fluctuates a lot and, um, reinventing and moving with the times and things like that. But even still, especially online, it's like my dad will just drop by my house and I'll be teaching a class and then he'll just sit down on the couch and I'm like, dad, I'm teaching right now. And it's like, because I'm not wearing a business attire or I'm not like in the vestiges of what it looks like to work to him, it's hard for him to understand that I'm working. Uh, so 
it's like there's a sort of, he's sort of mystified by how I've been able to do what I've done. But at the same time, I've had to learn, like, I do need help. And I don't, I'm a single person. I don't have a partner. I'm not making a lot of decisions with other people. Um, and for me, that's challenging because I really learn a lot through dialogue. I learn a lot through conversation. Um, I, I need to get the ideas out of my head and like throw them around a little bit to be able to understand what I want to do next. And so it's just, as you said, of course, over time, I mean, there were time where I didn't talk to my parents for a year and I cut, I cut myself off financially just so that I could prove to myself I could take care of myself. And there's definitely been a lot of stages, but um, I'm a, really appreciating the stage that we're at now. And like right now, I got in a car accident a couple of weeks ago and I'm fine and it wasn't my fault, but I did, my car did get totaled and I have to buy a new car. And like my dad's basically telling, he loves cars and he loves figuring stuff out. So he's basically telling me, like he's doing Intel, but I can tell he's also really trying to respect my time because my parents are very, they're like, take care of it. Their house is immaculate all the time. They both drive like leased Lexus and BMW. And I was going to drive my 2010 Ford Escape until it couldn't drive anymore. Like that's what feels good to me. What feels good to me is having a resource and using it until it's finished. It doesn't feel good for me to just turn it in and get something newer and upgrade. And so he's like giving me his opinions and like, oh, I found this 2017 Jetta that's this and that. But he's also seeing like, I have a lot going on right now and I have to do it at my own pace. And my own pace isn't the pace that my parents do things at. Beautiful. And it's very important to highlight, as you said, you're a single person and you're a single parent. And the way you were relating with your parents or, you know, you took a break for a time. You had to individuate. You had to create really strong, healthy boundaries, you know, for a time around money and everything. And at this time of your life as a single person, as a single parent, um, you're finding a wonderful way um, to work with them and to have their support at this time in your life. Are there- and that There's one other thing I wanna mm -hmm. mention because I just think it's interesting that since it's been obvious to the people in my family that I'm making more money, um, you know, I, my, my lifestyle really hasn't changed that much. Like I still live in a rented apartment. The rent is still the same as what I was paying before. Like I said, I had the same car until now I need to get a new one. But when my, my dad's business has not been doing well in the pandemic, my sister's married and has a partner who works. But even so, and they both live the more, what I would call like traditional, like they bought their house and they lease cars and um, they leverage a lot of cash. And, you know, they've asked me for money. Mm. And that's been really mm. interesting experience because I'm like, well, you know, and in some cases I've given it like when I have it. And also I think because my parents did pay for my education and not just undergraduate, like I did a year of grad school and they paid for that. They paid for rolfing school. Like they made these huge investments. There's kind of like, a, and when my dad would like lend me money in the past, if I said like, oh my gosh, I'm like in a cash flow thing. And he'd say, okay, well I have this. And He'd just say like, pay it back someday. There would never be a like, pay, pay me this back at this time kind of thing. So when he did ask me for it, I thought, okay, well, 
this is a time to give back. And that felt good. It felt really freaky in some ways. Like, okay, now I'm at a place where like that, it feels, it felt unstable. Like my dad's always been super reliable. Like he's known in his family for the one who has the best financial advice. He understands how markets work. And then it also just felt like, wow, I'm a person who like, I don't have debt. I've chosen not to leverage things. I've got money. I've got cash and savings because I've prioritize that because I'm, I feel like I'm kind of behind in like retirement savings and stuff because I only had money to save like in the last three years. Um, it's just, it's been a really bizarre feeling that, and, and, you know, just like that, not wanting to throw something in someone's face and be like, but yeah, but you, you do this and you do that and you do all these things. And then you want me to give you money, even though you're doing all these things. Um, it's just been really an interesting shift. I really appreciate you sharing more in this piece. Um, there's, there's so much to this from, you know, in many cultures, there's a sharing in all different ways, right? The parents pass down money when they can or they work for many years and then the kids start making more money and then they start taking care of the parents or elderly parents. It's, it's common in certain cultures. It's unknown in others. Um, you know, there's no right way. There's no right, wrong way. And I hear that you are all working this out and that there's many layers to it, um, stories and feelings to it, that, that you're honoring that your parents did pay for your college and then some training after and that there were some loans or gifts given right um and i didn't even mention that i've lived with them like when i moved back from brazil to the u.s i lived with my parents for an entire year so yeah yeah so you know i i i do love hearing that you're giving to them and i and i'm hearing it's not easy either because your father was the steady he was you know he was the one who was the supposed whatever this means you know responsible how we traditionally define that he was the steady he's the entrepreneur he knows about all of this um and you know guess what we all get curveballs in life right around life yeah. and me and they got a curveball maybe because of covid maybe because of you know, a change in other things. The markets have still stayed up um, more recently, but in 2008, there was a, right, there was that big crash. So thank you. You know, it just sounds like you are continuing to work this all out. And I'm sure having many, many, many life and money conversations that are challenging with them. Is there anything else you want to say about that I know you're good at having hard conversations and this will lead into the somatic work. Anything else to share there? But how yeah, you I mean I just I yeah. always like to share my personal experience just because I think sometimes I mean that's my work is all about breaking down traditional authority structures and 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 share my experience not just from someone who has it like well packaged and all figured out, but like someone who's in the midst of learning about these things too. And, and, you know, for me becoming a parent, which I think is true for most people is like confronting my ideals and confronting reality. And also, I mean, education is one of the ones that's the most famous is it's like, it's so hard for us to have imagine a different education for our children than the one we received. 
especially if our education worked well for us. So like for me, I'm somebody who like went to prep school, went to Ivy League, and I did really well in those systems. I mean, it could be that I, my system was an override as well, which is why I took so long away from writing and academia and went so far in the other direction. But, um, you know, even things like where to send my daughter to school and like wanting my parents approval for the choices that I'm making, because in a way, my parents, they're not my co-parents, but I mean, for a year of my daughter's life, we lived with them. It's like, I can't also imagine that their opinions don't matter at all. Because if I'm asking for help on the other side, I can't just dismiss all of their input. Right. And also I think that they're wise people. So it's like, I want to know what they're seeing that I'm not seeing as well. So it's, it's a dance. Cause I, my parents are also both children of alcoholics. We have a lot of codependency in my family. So I'm just, and you know, now I moved back. It's, it's kind of a joke. It's like groundhog day. I'm like a mile from my parents again. And it's just like, okay, I keep trying to get like far away. And then I keep getting pulled back, I think, because differentiation is so much harder in proximity. And it kind of shows us where we're at with it. Um, and Oh, I had one more thing that I wanted to say, but I can't think of it right now. It will come back and I'll yeah. ask you another question and see if it, it, you may have already answered this, but you know, how has, and we'll get into your somatic training more, but how is your work as a somatic experiencing facilitator impacted your money patterns, habits, and relationship? You've talked a bit, your pacing has been different. Your natural tendency has been more to save. Um, you're, you want to do things differently. Um, you know, more in alignment with your ways, you're trying to work that out with your parents, anything else in there, like that your, your training and what you learn as a somatic person, trainer of how to listen to your body's messages, how to check in, how to deeply listen, anything else about, you know, how your relationship to money and the habits and patterns, like how that's changing. I, you know, you talked about bench and I know that that's like a, grounding anchor foundation for you or are there any other strategies tools related to you being a somatic practitioner yeah i think what's coming to mind right now is what in the book is in chapter four which is capacity building and holding pleasure holding what's good um i think that it was hard for me to even think think of money as good because I had so many things of like money doesn't solve money problems and you should be happy no matter how much money. I mean, the good thing about that is I actually was happy without a lot of money. So I think that is actually good to know. I think a lot of people spend their whole lives worrying about what would happen if they didn't have any. And I'm not saying, I mean, obviously I've still moved in with my parents at different points in my life. I haven't ever been afraid of being homeless, but I have gotten down to some dire straits withdrawn from my checking account tons of times when my daughter was um, a baby, I couldn't work and I was injured. So, I mean, I, I have had like some really stressful times with it and also just feeling really disempowered, like never being able to get my credit card debt down below a certain point. And, but what I learned about that is about thresholds and it's like, and you teach this, but it's like, you know, we all sort of have a threshold of what we can deal with. So for some people, that's $2,000 on their credit card. For some people, it's $50,000 on their credit card. And it could be on the other side of like what we're okay with earning. 
But what I find with women specifically is that we always think about what we can give up. And I've noticed it's the same thing with food. It's like people think about what to eliminate or what to take out, but they don't think about opening themselves up to how to bring more in. And so that's something that I've really worked with is like, it's not about me not having the morning coffee or eliminating the, what feels like some few very basic pleasures for me. It's like opening up my perspective which is very much, you know, trauma makes, trauma narrows our perspective. It only allows us to see a certain realm of choices and opening that up to what are other ways, not just raising rates, because I think that's sort of stereotypical and what everyone talks about. And I don't always even think that's good advice, but like, what are more ways to make more money? Not just how can I squeeze myself as tight as possible to spend as little as possible. So I'd say that's expanding capacity, not just thinking reductively, but also thinking additively. Um, I've done a lot of tracking. So like when I got my first book advance this time, which was a big number, it was like 38,000 for my first installment or something. I got it and I deposited it and I just left it in my account for a little while. And I just kept going there and looking at the number. So my impulse is always to pay things off in big chunks. Like somehow that makes me feel good if I'm like, instead of paying things over time, like, okay, I'm just going to pay it all at once. But instead of like going ahead and like putting all the money in different places right away, I just left it and then went back and looked at it to really let that sink in that it was real. Because, you know, a paper check with money on it is like a number on it. It doesn't totally feel real. I can just click a few buttons on my computer and then it's gone again. So tracking, what does it feel like that I have now $60,000 in my bank account or $100,000 in my bank account? And just looking at the number and being able to leave it, which in, I call it a hold it moment. It's like, let, let in the good. Like even if it's not, even if you owe all that money or you owe that and more, that's our system's way of shifting us out of being able to hold that capacity for more, for handling more. Because that was another one of my fears was that, oh no, I'm going to have more and then I'm not going to know what to do with it. And I'm going to have to learn all these things that I don't know anything about. Like I don't know anything about APRs and I don't know anything about payroll and all these like words and spreadsheets is like, but that was all an imagination that wasn't really reality because it happens even if you earn, you know, your earnings jump really a ton one year to the next, it's still, a, it's, there's still some increments. So I've been able to learn those things slowly over time. And I've also, you know, I've dealt with a lot of shame. I, I met with this one woman who is a um, venture capitalist and we were sitting talking and I came to like basically pitch her in a way, although it was more of an introductory meeting but I just cried the whole time. It was so embarrassing. And she looked at me and said, like, you have financial trauma. Like you help people with sexual trauma and birth trauma, but, but this is like financial trauma. And it was true. And it was like, well, this is, I mean, thankfully she's like a really wonderful, sweet person. And, um, it, you know, I was able to have that experience and realize like, wow, this is, this is a really big deal for me. Um, so yeah, so expanding capacity, um, 
being able to hold on to pleasure and recognize upper limit problems, which is an extension of that. An upper limit problem is a term coined by Gay Hendricks in The Big Leap, talking about sometimes when things that we feel are negative happen, it's because something so good happened right before that. And because I employ a lot of people now and I was, I've experimented in different ways of payment, I've seen it happen with employees where they earn more than they've ever earned in one month and then they quit the next month. And then they realize like, oh no, I didn't really mean to do that. But it's like their system just, it was just so much more money than they had had before. There's so much to all of this. And I love that you're talking about, again, personally, what you're working through. You know, I think so many people have, have money shame and levels and layers of money trauma. And you've been working on many of them, you know, and then you hit a new threshold when you went to go pitch, you know, yeah. and you know, how tender that your body was just crying the whole time, you know, it was trying to move, you know, it was trying to move through things. It was trying to release. And I love that she was able to hold you to some degree, you know, or witness or be present. Everything you're talking about um, from, you know, earning more. I know that you've had some big leaps, you know, and I love that you're sharing that you would, you know, sit the money, you would tuck it away and let it sit there so you could feel the energy of it. You could um, keep tracking. How are you feeling? What are your impulses? What do you want to do? You know, do you want to pay down all the debt? Other people want to spend it all. They don't want to hold. It's so challenging to hold on to it, you know, um, or, or everything you said, they fear they don't know what they're going to, they don't know what to do with it or that they're going to make a wrong decision, right? And so it's tucking it away, sitting, letting it sit there for a while, sitting in that, noticing and growing your capacity um, for the extra, for, you know, the energy of that. I can remember giving a talk to more people than I ever had. And that was growing my capacity. It was just, it's more energy. And I don't know yet how to ride, ride these waves. So I'm just going to ride them, you know, as best as I can and learn. Um, and as you're saying, you know, growing the capacity for more pleasure, right? Anything else there? There's so much there, Kimberly. There, yeah. Know, there's so much yeah, there. Yeah, I think, I mean, if we believe that, you know, right, right now we're in this cultural conversation that's now come to the surface with about structural racism and privilege. And that's a conversation that I've been in since I was a teenager. So I definitely have had to unravel a belief that me having more means other people having less. Mm -hmm. And that my very existence, I think the narrative on the planet right now is like that humans are the plague of the planet. We're destroying everything. We're the predator and we're like, we're like the beast of the natural world. And so if we adopt that mentality and we take that, internalize it, like, well, God, consuming anything means I'm basically bad because it's creating trash and it's, you know, poor people who are working and, you know, every decision we make has all of these meanings that can be layered onto it then having more also means reckoning with all of that and reckoning with like 
how do I hold the fact that I am privileged and I do have these tools and, and how do I, how am I going to measure if I'm giving back enough and how am I going to measure if I'm repaying my debt to the planet or debt to the other people that are living on the planet? So for me, it's, it's not like it's just been resolved and I, and I have an answer to it. Um, definitely being a parent has helped with that because, but even so, I mean, there was a big, I had a huge thing with myself about sending my daughter to private school because in New York, because I believe in public education. I have a degree in education. Uh, and then what resolved that for me was that one of the men who lived on my block was a high school principal. And he told me, I'm not sending my daughter to public school. And I was like, are you serious? Cause like he runs a high school, he's a principal. And he's like, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't send my own child to public school. And when he said that, I was like, oh, I had permission to also make it a, a different choice that was maybe against my ideals, but following my instinct about what was best and just realizing the long view of our energetic investments. And now that I do have more money, Number one, I do have more peace of mind. So it's absolutely true that my nervous system has more, more space in it. I'm less stressed. Something like getting in a car accident, still very stressful, still residue to undo, still not my forte, getting all the paperwork in addition to everything I'm doing, but not the desperation of like, oh shit. Like I don't actually, like what am I, am I gonna borrow the money? Am I gonna charge it? how am I actually going to do it? Now it's like, okay, it's, it's just a level of stress that's taken away. But also I really am able to help so many more people because I really am able to mobilize people because I do have more people that are listening to what I'm saying. And I can use that for good. I can use that to invest in, like I funded a STEAM study project. I, co I crowdfunded it, but I also raised a lot of the funds together with Kelly Garza of Steamy Chick. Um, I raised $90,000. My community raised it last year for a Black-owned birth center. So the things that are really important to me now are not just important on like, oh, I'm in a post on social media and, and have people do it. It's like, no, now I can actually be a part of converse, bigger conversations that actually might have more long lasting change. Wonderful. And I think so many questions to just keep sitting with was, you know, how do we know when we're giving back enough? How do we know when we're redistributing wealth enough in, you know, marginalized communities? How do we know? And I, you know, I think each person is going to be answering that in a different way. Um, some people want an exact equation, you know, like, should it be 10%? Should it be, you know, like tithing? Or is there, a, is, is it just so different? That's one of my questions, you know, and that comes up in my community a lot. Is like, how do I know? You know, how do I know? And I think it's such an individual thing. So that's one thing I'm just sitting with. So maybe down the road, that's to be continued on that one. And um, yes, to all the questions. Well, our, all, our trauma and our nervous system will tell us it's never enough unless we retrain ourselves to feel the impact of each of the things that we do when we do them. So it's a little bit counter to, I think, the dominant narrative right now, which is basically like if you are in any circumstance of privilege, no matter what that is, race, gender, nation, 
that like you should, you are continuously indebted and it can never be repaid. Um, and what I know about behavior and what I know about healing is that we will never heal if that's the narrative that we buy into. The same with the planet. If we actually think that we are at war with our planet, we will never be able to create the con regenerative conditions uh, until we are in partnership and realizing that we're all swimming in the same soup and we are nature. We inhabit this planet, but we are, we are nature itself. We are not separate, separate from nature. Then we get a little bit closer. And I think, you know, I know a lot about behavioral change. So do you. And it's like, if, unless we can acknowledge the small things that we're doing well, we just swim in that soup of everything that's going wrong and everything that's not fair and all of the ways that we were wrong in the past or our ancestors were wrong. Um, and I'm not excusing any behavior. It's just that if we want to work towards that change, um, we have to acknowledge the small things that we're doing. Hmm. So baby steps are essential. Um, you know, and realizing with a lot of women, I mean, I work with so many women and they're developing businesses that are not profitable because they're only developing them from a service angle. Like they want like the Tom's model of like buy a shoe, get a shoe, but they don't realize the seed capital that's behind that to be able to make that profitable eventually if it's going to be profitable. So I I think that the wrong people are asking the questions about capitalism. Like I'm interested in post-capitalist growth, but it's, it's not really helpful to be marginalized, struggling and not succeeding within the system, trying to change it because there's a way to actually do it ethically and then to change it from that place. So I just see that people are the way that the intentions are very good, but there's so much, angst wrapped up in money and because money also is power and as women we haven't had the power so we're we don't like the way other people have used power so then we're afraid to have it and i just think it's for me it's just been one of the steps out of my lineage of women which is no woman in my family ever has been a breadwinner mm -hmm. zero times mm -hmm. lots of the women worked they mostly worked to support the business that their husbands generated my mom worked after my brother went to high school and, but it was always like almost treated like a hobby, like, okay. And it was also secondary income. It was never relied on. Like, it's like, that's your money type of thing. Kind of like a kid, like that's your money you're basing. So you have your own money. And so it's a much different thing to be in the space of breadwinner. Kimberly, I'm the first breadwinner woman in my family as well. And how I've never said that before, I've never said that before. You know? Wow. I am the first female breadwinner. Now, me and my husband share that, but there were times where I was the I was I I I let I was the I, I was the main. <laughs> I was the main, right? And now we share. We now we share. Now we share. I need to acknowledge that. Yes. But the the first one making money, you know, the first woman in my family. Um, okay. All right. I, I, so much there to unpack and I, I want to move into your book, even though we've been touching on it a lot. Um, and I want to define some of the concepts. Okay. Um, 
But I, I do have a little intro here because as I, number one, I was listening to your book. I was listening to your book, which I think is so important for everyone to hear. Um, if you can't read nonfiction like me, I read novels and memoirs all the time. But for some reason lately, the only way I can take in nonfiction is if I'm listening, right, listening. And um, I'm going to talk about more of that in a second. I'm going to describe what your book is. Um, but one other thing, though, Kimberly, is that you may not know this, but when I was getting my master's in psychology 25 to 28 years ago, I was studying dance movement therapy, somatic psychology, um, through authentic movement, um, learning how to lead group movement classes in dance movement therapy, you know, studying Christine Caldwell's moving, the moving cycle, and Susan Apotion's work. So Peter Levine's first book came out as I was graduating. So I left my master's degree with no training on trauma in the nervous system. So, um, you know, I, I bring so many, I bring somatic tools to the very first, you know, module in my program, the very first chapters of my book um, about money emotions and learning how to listen to your body, the sensations, your breath. But my training stopped at trauma and nervous system. So I've been, you know, and then I did my, you know, and then I started my own business and I've been on that path for, you know, all these years. So I am so excited to just simply define some of these concepts. Yes, I've been studying it on the side, <laughs> um, but, you know, this is, this is your training and this is what you're so seasoned in. Okay. So this leads me to your book, your new book, Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power and Use It for Good. And I, a few notes about the book. So it, it, you've said it's a feminine approach to the body keeps the score. Um, in the book, there's somatic explorations and exercises throughout. A quote, listening to this book will provoke your mind. Trying out the exercises will engage your body and make this wisdom fully yours. As you're listening, follow your body's clues as you listen to this book. You know, what other books say that, you know? And, and you talk about how our culture teaches us to ignore our body's messages. I know that well. The last one is a quote, coordinating your body's impulses with actions that respect and satisfy its needs will help you establish a new sense of safety and confidence. So let's please, I mean, I want to know how you went from talk therapy and spiritual practices to, you know, tr doing your own somatic therapy and then training in it. So let's see if we can weave that in. But I really want to talk about some of the basic concepts around um, trauma, regulating the nervous system. And so should we talk about fight, flight, freeze, and fawn and just simply define them as we start? Sure. So I do want to say, though, you know, there's lately there's these separations in terms of like you're saying, well, you didn't really learn trauma till the end of your training, but everything you're describing is all somatic work. Yes. And what's happening right now is that because somatic experiencing, for example, has become so popular and because it works and there's been more research 
there's a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, marriage and family therapists who go and they kind of, they have their clinical training and then they get their quote unquote somatic approach. But what you're describing is this is an essential part of just how you orient to the world. And that might not be true for every dancer, but I found that it is true for a lot of dancers. And there still seems to be kind of a divide between people who come to somatic work as massage therapists, body workers, basically touch people, people who, who speak the language of the body, speak the language of movement, um, perceive the world in another way than through the mind. So, um, you know, we might have these categories. I was really hesitant about putting the name trauma in the title. Uh, it's a huge SEO word right now. Um, Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk has been backlisted for like 180 weeks, especially during the pandemic as a reference point. But I wanted to write a book that people, and, and not to say, I mean, it's a great, I love Body Keeps the Score and I also love Waking the Tiger and I don't think it's necessary to like reject those things in order to talk about a new thing. But when I was in trauma training, basically what I realized was it was, there was still a lot of people that were not coming from a body perspective. They were learning a body perspective, but that wasn't their orientation mm -hmm. towards beingness with someone else. And to me, the difference, very generalized difference is that someone that's coming from a psychological background is really coming through analysis. So they're coming to it like, let's find the problem. We're going to try We're going to talk about this and we're going to figure out what the problem is. And someone who maybe comes from more of a body focus is going to just be there in open presence to see what is elicited through the body and not really believe the spoken narrative unless it feels like that spoken narrative is evolving out of a present moment felt what's called felt sense, which means you can tell someone's in their felt sense when it feels like what they're saying is fresh, it's not rehearsed, and it's evocative. It's actually arriving moment by moment as they're speaking. Hmm. And then you asked about the... Can I just, I just want to thank you for a moment, you know, for just a very personal, like, thank you, you know, yes, yes, yes to all of that. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean... The other thing to maybe mention is that these, this, this world now, right, this quote-unquote trauma world, and, and my ambivalence about the word is just that because it makes it seem like it's separate from humanness. And, and really, like we were talking about building capacity by being able to, to hold things that are good and, and more in maybe a positive direction, but what our nervous system is perceiving as potentially negative because it's just so different from what we've the ideas we've had or what's been our reality is that it is just part of life and so when we when we separate it and we say well this is somatics or this is trauma work like you are doing if i had financial trauma and i've been i haven't done your full year long course but i've followed your work i've worked your book you are doing trauma work whether or not you had specific trauma training and in fact, it's arguably more effective because people aren't coalescing around a crystallized problem necessarily. 
like they may be coalescing around education and learning, which is curiosity. And curiosity is where growth can happen. So um, I just, yes, I do. I have spent a lot of time working with women, helping them heal from birth trauma and gynecological surgeries and sexual boundary repairs. Most of that though, is because we're swimming in a soup that's out of alignment from how our nervous systems function optimally. And in order to be in alignment, we have to be really countercultural in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, so I just want to say, I just think it's really important because people who might see the cover of the book might go, well, I'm not traumatized. So I don't like what it doesn't really have anything to do with me. But in fact, like the book could have said a real world understanding of your nervous system, what it looks and feels like, or um, how to be a human being, how to be human with other people, or how to tolerate conflict and stay in connection. Like these are all skills that are built by understanding somatics. It's just that even the word somatics, not in the title, because that's still not a very common word. Totally. Or, or just, how to listen to your, how to learn to your list, how to learn to listen to your body again, yeah. you know, or how to, yes. Hmm. So I think what could be really cool is talking about something that, um, I did talk about this, you know, the threat responses and I'll, I'll lay those out now, but also talking a little bit about how they map onto money because, sometimes we we compartmentalize these things too of like well sex is one thing or i have medical trauma or i have relationship trauma or mine is attachment trauma but when it and, and it's true we're all com complex and we all are you know we're not robots we're very you know we're animals we're intelligent human animals um it can sometimes be helpful to see how how it works in different spheres of our life because we may be really predisposed to freeze when we're at work but we are really expressed when it comes to relationships or with our children we might find ourselves in over you know in override but in another area we seem to be able to advocate for ourselves just fine so one thing that has been really out there in the literature and social media is that and what we kind of learned and most of us learned in high school or middle school in the nervous system was that sympathetic is fight or flight and parasympathetic is rest and digest. And that's a mixed metaphor. So once polyvagal theory came along in 1994, it was like, okay, that's not exactly how the nervous system works. That's comparing apples and oranges because you're comparing the sympathetic system under threat to the parasympathetic system at rest or in safety. When we feel safe in our system, which is different for everyone, those conditions are different for everyone, the sympathetic system is what wakes us up and gets us out of bed in the morning. And the parasympathetic system is what lets us slow down, rest. It's where sphincters open. It's where in birth, it's where dilation happens. Hmm. And then on the flip side, if we feel that we're under threat and our physiology determines that, not our rational mind, in the sympathetic system, we'll find ourselves in fight or flight, fight being moving towards the threat, engaging the threat, flight moving away from the threat, that's like avoidance or in its full response, leaving, 
you saw that a lot in the pandemic of flight responses, either literal migration or just lots of, um, you know, fantasies about leaving and getting out of here and leaving the country or going to Canada or, you know, all of those things that get kicked up around elections too. Um, and then in freeze is, in, sorry, in the parasympathetic is freeze or collapse. So um, it's not rest and digest when the parasympathetic system is under threat. And then the other layer that came in that I think has really plays a big part in especially female nervous systems, but I think most of your listeners will relate, is that in the social nervous system, which is a more recent nervous system developed for maternal bonding, the threat, the threat response in the social nervous system is if we feel threatened, meaning we're looking around in the faces of other people or our imagination of what other people are thinking or feeling about us, we have two choices or we're dealing with power. We either fawn, which is being really nice, appeasing, getting closer to the threat, that's what we saw in Me Too, the people, those of us who like would go back to the perpetrator's hotel room or repeatedly sleep someone, with someone that already harmed us. Um, the whole movie Bombshell was really about that, all these different flavors of fawning that from the outside seems like stupid behavior. Like, well, if it was really that harmful, why would you go back to it? But from a nervous system physiological perspective is actually a safety mechanism to keep something that's threatening closer to you rather than having it roaming around out there where you don't know, where it's unpredictable and you don't know what's going to happen. And then the other one is fitting in, which is camouflaging or minimizing your own expression. And I find that that one, especially with money, comes into play because some people, it's really threatening to earn more than your family's ever earned. Yeah. It's almost like um, what they call in it's like survivor's guilt almost is like, oh my gosh, like, what are they going to think about me? Are they going to think I'm better than everyone else? Are they going to think I'm uppity? Are they going to think that, you know, I forgot where I came from? What is it going to mean about me if I earn more? And then also what it will, what does it mean about me? This more, more where I was is like that I'm earning less. Like I have all of these cousins and relatives that, and, uh, you know, earn so much more. And what does it mean about me that like, I can't make it that I'm like choosing this other thing. And so to, to make our way out of those responses and what is different about what I'm, what I do in my work that, that I've seen out there in theory so far is that I found that both cycling up out of freeze and flight into healthy fight and cycling down from fawning and fitting in into healthy fight is where the repairs actually happen. When we can come into a sense of power and healthy aggression, knowing what we want, feeling like we have the capacity to go and act on those impulses and to stay focused on them without letting our energy be drained. But in the meantime, this is happening in many cycles all the time. So it's not like we have to wait for some big event or some big thing. Um, you know, we're, if you just think about, you know, we were talking about earlier, like, okay, so you get a paycheck. What do you do with it? Do you just right away spend it? Or do you right away pay people off? Do you, do you hold on to it? Do you, I mean, for a long time, I was a rolfer, and so I would charge people for 10 sessions and they would give me $1,000 for 10 sessions. And I would hold on to the check until the end of the 10 sessions because I've just felt like, well, 
I don't know. I don't know if I want to deposit it. And then it just will feel like maybe I'm going to lose interest and then I'm not going to give as good of sessions if I deposit it at the beginning. And I didn't really know anything about accounting. So I didn't know how that kind of screws other people up when you don't cash their checks right away. So um, all of these responses, I think we tend to attach a lot of meaning like, oh gosh, like I'm in fight or flight all the time and I shouldn't be or I'm, I'm always doing this. And it's like, we all have tendencies to do one or the other, um, what I call default responses in the book, but they're all highly adaptive. The only question is, are they adaptive in the present moment or are you reacting to the present moment as if something in the past is still happening? Okay, so I, I love this, that you know these different responses, re responses come up in all different ways. They may come up, you know, in, in, in sexual moments in certain ways, in money ways in certain moments, food in certain ways, like, and you, they may have some similar patterns, but it, you may just have different things in different areas, right? And the saying that parasympath parasympathetic is all good and sympathetic is all bad, like that's been going around. That's not true. We really need both. Right. So here's a really practical question. So let's say, for example, someone goes to pay their bills and they they, you know, I'm asking them to do a body check in and they go into a pretty strong flight response or freeze response. You know, how do you support someone like what tools or practices to come back in the body or, yeah, give me a little um, sure. Yeah, that's a great, a okay. great question. And there's not only one answer, but one of those things could be, so I teach breath work as well. And sometimes just sitting down to start a breathing pattern already put someone in a flight response or a freeze response. And if that's the case, one thing you might check out is like, what if you start by moving first? So most freeze responses are in well, all freeze responses are immobilization responses and we should like do a little you know dog year here too is like we're we're talking at the end of april 2021 like we're we're somewhere hopefully emerging out of the global pandemic we don't know how how we don't know the the trajectory but in most places at least in the u.s the restrictions are loosening a little bit so if you have earlier immobilization responses, you're more likely to be feeling this immobilization because that's how our nervous systems work. They, they pull up old iterative experiences. So if somebody is right away having a freeze response, number one, it's remaining in connection, which you would already be doing. So just like, oh, I noticed that you're feeling a little bit freezy. Now, sometimes people just have different patterns. So like when my therapist asked me like, well, what are you noticing right now? It's going to take me a little while to report back. I just tend to, I'm a, I have a parasympathetic dominant system. I tend to just have a slower rhythm in life in general. And I know you also tend to have a slower rhythm because you talk about that a lot. That's not a trauma response. That's just organisms being different. And one thing that I hope that everyone gains from the book is what I call learning your code. Like we need to know our own codes. That way we're not comparing ourselves to everyone else and we're not trying to be the way that other people are. And as a therapist, I know that my pace is slower. So if I have a client that comes that's really fast, I have to speed up a little bit to work with them because 
it would be really bizarre if I just stayed in my like really slow pace or maybe even slowed down more, they would feel like I'm completely misattuning to them. And conversely, if somebody is a practitioner and their pace is really fast, they're going to have to slow themselves down. And even in that calibration of rhythm, we're already doing repair work because we're just accurately mirroring what a system needs in that moment. So I think naming something is really helpful. That's already a step out of freeze, whether that person themselves says, like, I noticed that I'm, it's taking me a really long time to respond or freeziness can also feel like fogginess. Like, I just don't even know. I think that's how most people think, feel when they either get a bill in the mail or they have to open a bill. It's like people go into a real like hazy confusion, dissociation almost kind of a feeling. Um, and I know you give people a lot of practices for that. Um, sometimes it can be simple if it feels like a flight response to just alternately um, tap your, like if you had your feet on the floor to lift the ball of your foot and your toes and do like a walking movement with your feet, because that would be like a small version of a running away type of a gesture. I love this. I mean, you're saying all sorts of things that I say and more or suggest or, you know, and we're all so different, right? And so it's trying to track ourselves once we've gone into freeze or track ourselves once we've gone into flight and just try to locate ourselves. And as you're saying, it might be like doing the little walk with the balls of the feet. It might be getting up um, and doing a little movement in the room. It may be getting up and going to get some water or a little snack or you know, taking a little nature walk and coming back and checking in again and seeing yeah. what we're doing then, you know, and, and if you could peek at the bill, you know, like can we peek now? You know, okay. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's even exaggerating. So I do a lot of what I call a fight breath, which is kind of people have said it kind of looks like the Hakka um, men in the Maori people in New Zealand, but it, but so if you know something's hard for you, like, you know, oh God, and you start to feel like dread, which dread is kind of a little bit of a flight response and starting to go to a little bit of apathy and resignation, which is a freeze response. And you just know that about yourself. You can either do like, you know, get involved in the second arrows of how you shouldn't feel bad that you do that and da, 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 which we all do, but like, you know, let's try to cut that cut that out because it doesn't really go anywhere. Then you could start activating your, your healthy sympathetic nervous system before you go to do the thing. So what does that mean? It means activating your flexors. It means um, doing more percussive sounds, listening to percussive music, doing things that are, um, you know, could be t like literally you know, punching something, um, but anything that's going to get you into that feeling of power before you do it. Because I find what people do is they, it's like we force ourselves, right? Because like, we know we have to do it and like, oh my God, we're dreading it. And then you force yourself to do it. Okay. That's, that's okay. It's sort of, that's kind of like exposure therapy, but like, you know, we're all doing our best and experimentation is great. So maybe that does work for you sometimes. But you could try to actually get yourself in the state that you want to be in when you're doing it. Does that make sense? So like an example is like one time I was doing high intensity functional training in New York 
And I went to the gym and I was a little early. So I was reading a book and someone came by and like commented like, wow, you're reading a book right now. And, and then I realized, yeah, this is actually really weird and not functional because in the way that I was looking at it, I was like, oh, my nervous system must be really flexible because I can be super downregulated and concentrating on a book. And then the next minute I'm going to be like in a class really pushing myself. We polyvagal theory told us stories follow state. So we want to be in the state to do what we're doing. And for everyone, that's going to mean something different. But for most of the time with nervous system stuff, people are always saying, like people would probably say about finances, like, okay, if you know it gets you really stressed out, then like do a yoga nidra and like get in a sauna and, you know, make sure that you're like breathe, exhale a lot and like breathe out and deep breathe. But actually what a lot of people would need is the opposite. They'd need to activate their system more and be able to tolerate something that feels like potentially out of control because that's actually what's happening underneath all of these other responses. Does that make sense? It does. And I, and I love, I'm going to ask you one more question and then we're going to complete and then I'm going to just send everyone to your book to okay. to it. If you're like me, if you need to, cause that is helping me slow down. Well, you know, and I always slow down sometimes just to pace myself, you know, I was in the bathtub for some of it. I was out of the bathtub. I was walking around, you know, listening and moving for some of it. Um, but I love what you're saying because yes, on some level, we're always like, calm yourself down. You know, like if you do a body check in, everyone thinks like I should calm myself down, but that's not always where we're going here, right? That's not always the right move. It's not always a way to repair. It's not always the way to get you into a different state. Um, so Beyonce, or what's the metal band that my husband is always listening to? I can't think of it. I don't know. What I, We were just talking before this interview how years ago when I was at the, the beginning of perimenopause and had so much anxiety and anger, <laughs> and we were at a book celebration and I started playing Beyonce and he played metal band back to me. That was our conversation. Who is it? Anyway, they're, they're one, they're, I, they did a, oh, they, they did a documentary about them. Who are, what is this metal band? And they all went to therapy. Um, mm. and they shared that. Uh, anyway, a metal band that all went to therapy and did a documentary about it. I loved it. That's um, amazing. Yeah, amazing. We, we know who, um, so. Is it Metallica? It's, it's Metallica. Yes. Okay. Metallica. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so the last thing is just to bring in the Jaguar. Yes. Um, and, you know, two things. One is that you and I share freckles. Mm. Um, I won a freckle contest. You would beat me. Oh, wow. That's when, I, when I was eight years old, um, my sister came in second. And so, you know, wow, that's incredible. Congratulations. <laughs> I don't think I've ever shared that. Um, and, you know, I come from redhead freckles and I, I think I'm a redhead freckle person, but I don't have the red hair. You know, my grandma had the red hair. My dad had the red hair. So, um, that Lee and I have, and people have told me if when I close my eyes, I have the Jaguar spots. Now you're, mm. you're covered your Jaguar spots everywhere. You know, eyelids everywhere in your body. It's amazing. Um, so here's a short little Jaguar story. And, and this will lead into this short is that, you know, years ago, I tell this story of being at a car dealership, hyperventilating in the car dealership, going in the bathroom to do a body check-in um, to name it, sit with it, 
you know, bring my breath down. I was trying to calm myself down um, and then go into action, which was, what do I need to do? I came out of the bathroom. I told Forrest, my husband, we need to have a 20 to 30 minute money date in the car dealership to go through our questions. You know, do we have the cash flow? Do we, you know, is this purchase in alignment with our values? You know, it was an electric car, yes. Will this purchase impact our larger goal of buying a home? Okay, so that was how I dealt with it in that moment. But there was clearly some flight, you know, happening. Um, and I don't, I don't like to make quick decisions. I like pacing to be slower. And that's where I was at at the time. And then I did another few years later, buy, had to buy a car because there was an accident, had to get a new car. And I went in and I was calm, you know, no fight, flight, freeze during the whole thing, right? Then years later, we had to go, we went to buy a house it happened in 36 hours and I, I went into full, like, we're making this happen. I'm making this happen, you know? And I led the way while my husband had some fight, flight, freeze that was happening for him. And I came out of that and he was like, whoa, you just jaguared that entire situation, you know? Nice. Totally jaguared it. And I was like, I guess I did, you know, and it doesn't come out all the time. He used to call it a, anyway, a speed train, but then he moved into its Jaguar mode. Okay. So then when I started hearing you talk about Jaguar and what this represents, um, you know, I was like, oh yeah, I, I had that experience. And, mm -hmm. and so please share a beginning teaching on this and it does segue into like how do we repair from our um are they called would you call coping me mechanisms or just habitual um trauma responses you know so how, a little bit i think more it's like our default modes default. but also okay. um you know part of what i talk about in the book that is a little bit new also at least in the realm of trauma world is that not only do we have some native predisposition, so our actual connective tissue and what our connective tissue is made out of can lead us to certain nervous system responses. And additionally to that, then we have our conditioning of, of what we've been taught in our family, in our religion, and in our culture. Um, you know, for me, Jaguar came and... and I, it's not, people say, well, are you going to teach me how to find my spirit animal? Is that part of it? Um, so I lived in Brazil and my therapist at the time happened to be from the Amazon. And I didn't know that until a very specific moment that I went to session and told him that my friends had given me the feedback that my daughter was becoming very authoritarian and that I needed to get a handle on it. And it was people that I really trusted. I was of course horrified and embarrassed and really pissed too, actually. But um, I knew it was one of those, like, I knew that I had to listen because I really trusted this person's opinion. And so in that moment, I was saying, you know, I was feeling sorry for myself because I was like, oh God, I'm like single mom and I have to do all the unconditional love and, you know, nurturing. And, and that seemed like that came really easily to me. And then I also have to do all this discipline and boundary setting. And he said, do you know that I'm from the Amazon, which I didn't. And then he said, you're a Jaguar. And it's the females that teach the cubs to hunt. 
So he just sort of fractured the split that I had created about what a mom and a dad would do and, and how my life would be different if I had that. And for me, it was a really important offering that is just the fruits of it have just to this day continually unravel themselves about what it means for me to come into right relationship with predator or hunting energy because I was so identified with the prey on every level. I became vegetarian. I was an activist. um, And none of those things are inherently negative. It's just in my own nervous system, I had lost a lot of my self-protective and self-defensive mechanisms because of that over-identification. I think when people hear about predator or jaguar energy, they automatically associate it with like a feral animal because in human culture, we think of predators as like a Harvey Weinstein or someone who is on the attack all the time in a way that's very out of control. But in truth, a jaguar hunts only part of the time. It only hunts what it can eat. And then the rest of the time it chills out, plays with its cubs, sleeps on branches, and roams, roams around or rests in shade. Uh, a, that is right relationship to predator energy. It doesn't mean that we're going to go around needlessly dominating other people or harming them. In fact, it's the reverse. When we have intact predator gesture within our nervous system and we know what that feels like, we can actually truly relax. We can actually truly surrender. We're not just in doormat mode by default or in helplessness we because we know if we were to be threatened we would defend our cubs we would defend our territory we would take what's ours and that um that is what is so deeply difficult for most people who are females because we're socialized to be good to be nice to be proper to maintain connection and it's not just socialization it's also hormones our estrogen is a bonding hormone that makes us, it gives us the superpower of knowing how in a room, how to preserve harmony, how to keep people together, how to create cohesiveness. And it's why menopause is the exact opposite because we don't have any estrogen anymore. And most people are, they pendulate to this other side of all this rage um, where it's like, you don't, you're just like, everyone can take care of themselves now. I'm not going to sacrifice myself for the needs of the group anymore. And that goes against a lot of female conditioning. Kimberly, thank you so much for your time. You've been incredibly generous. This is the longest interview I've done (laughs) in so long. And thank you. Thank you. So I guess you can break it in two if you need to. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to leave it as is. This is perfect. I, I mean, of course, there could be, I, you know, a part two, a part three. Um, you know, please let everyone know where they can find you and any last thoughts. You can find me at KimberlyAnnJohnson.com. And if you go to KimberlyAnnJohnson.com slash chapter, you can read the first chapter of the book for free. If you want to check out, like if you're really curious specifically about the nervous system um, specifics, like the bones of it, that's in the first chapter. And you can find me on Instagram. Those are great places. And my podcast, Sex Birth Trauma Podcast, where Barry's been a guest on my podcast before. Hmm. 
Kimberly, anything else or does that feel complete? I think we covered some wilderness. I think the territory was <laughs> vast, but I do want people to know that uh, I think trauma is a really big word. And I think you don't have to necessarily relate to the word itself, but if you, the, it's not even hope. It's just the reality. I'm a real devotee of reality. The reality is that you have everything right now that you need to make repair and you don't have to go on like an archeological dig into your past in order to do that repair. You just need connection and witnessing. And that can be in the form of your journal. It can be in the form of one-on-one. -on -one. It can be in the form of one of the classes I teach it can be in the form of connecting in another way. But I would really implore people, especially as we're coming out of this period of like mass collective immobilization, that we really give a lot of attention and intention to how we gather again and not think of that as a luxury, not think of that as, you know, an extra, that connection is imperative to our survival, as imperative as these other instincts. And we're going to need to be committed to that over the next couple of generations so that we can build the world that we want to belong to. I am so very grateful for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me with this money memoir interview. I really hope you found something here to take with you, whether it was a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals soul deep aspirations and grab your favorite person. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices and money maps and blends therapeutic body-based practices with real life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So if you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the Art of Money today, learn more at barrytesler.com.